Well, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And Rick, thank you so much for leading that song. I ask you to lead that. I know you didn't know it well, but I think that was beautiful. That was a description of our unity as we're singing that together. And as we'll be looking today at this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and its sister passages in the Gospels. It's good to see some of you. I haven't seen some of you since Tuesday, and I've missed you since then, and some I haven't seen this year yet, so I'm grateful to be seeing you. Not your fault, but ours. We had some health issues at the home, weren't able to get out earlier in the year, but grateful to be everybody back together. I've got a good number with us today here in person, several more online. We're thankful for that. We're thankful that God has blessed us with being able to worship Him and join our voices and our hearts together in unity in this way, and to join our minds together as we look into his word, as we think about these things that he's revealed. This is the great text in Deuteronomy 6 as Moses is laying out the law for this generation that survived the wilderness. The adults had all died. This generation of their children came up to go into the promised land. And he's reminding them of the basis of this law that they're receiving. He's already told them of the Ten Commandments back in chapter 5. Then as he lays out really what is going to be their constitution, their covenant for their living in this holy land, he begins by telling them to hear the Lord. That is the basis for this. And as they hear him, they should love him with their all. In the New Testament, we see this additional word here in, in Deuteronomy 6, it's love the Lord thy God, with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. In the New Testament, there's this other word, mind. And it may seem as though Jesus perhaps is adding something. There's a new dimension that comes along when Jesus comes in. Many have, have taught it that way. And it's tempting to sort of see it that way until you realize that in Luke chapter 10, it's actually not Jesus who misquotes, if you will, Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's a scribe in Luke chapter 10. And he says it the same way that Jesus says it in the Mark and Matthew accounts. And so what we understand is that there's been some kind of a linguistic change. And I'll talk about that a little bit more as we go in and look a little bit more deeply at what's going on here in this text. I want you to also notice uh, uh, on the newsletter I'm sending around in the bottom right corner of the first page, you'll see this little thing that says focus. It's got a magnifying glass on it right now. That'll change as we go through the year. Personally, I'm trying to focus on the fruit of the spirit the different aspects of the fruit of the Spirit in my own personal life, my personal growth. And I plan to preach once a month at least from that focus. And so whatever will be on the front of that newsletter will be one of the lessons I'll be teaching from. And so today's lesson is on love. That is the focus for the month of January. That is something I'm doing, but I encourage you to do that with me. I would be very encouraged to know how your focus on love is going if you uh, do that along with me. I certainly want to encourage you with what the Bible says about that, and especially today as we look at this great text on loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Well, what do we begin with here as we look at this text? We start with the simple injunction to hear, O Israel. We sang that several times in that song. Such an important thing as we're coming before the Lord to be willing to hear Him. Hearing Him humbles us. <laughs> you imagine... Israel, as they came to Mount Sinai, they were told the Lord is going to speak to you from the mountain. They were told for three days to be purifying themselves, preparing themselves. The Lord himself was going to descend on the mountain to give them the law. 
It was such a frightening thing when he finally came that they said, Moses, you go talk to him. It's too much for us. But God said he did that because he wanted them to fear him. He wanted them to understand who it was that was trying to have this relationship with them. But this was not some just philosophical uh, ponderings. This is not just some great theoretical things that were being told. This was God himself speaking to them. And how important it is for us to remember that. Hear Israel. We're the Israel of God by faith. And we ought to be first willing to hear him. He began Deuteronomy 6 by talking about this very thing. Deuteronomy 6, the first three verses say, Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the, Lord, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. He begins by telling them to hear, and then he makes that stand out in verse 4. Hear, O Israel. But if you look through the text, all the way down through, it is the Lord who has brought them out. And he says, I want you to hear verse 12, so that when you go into the land and you have all these great things, that you won't forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. But it's not just a one-time hearing. Oh, the Lord spoke to us from Sinai. Wasn't that great? Remember back then when God spoke to us? No. Continue hearing what he said. That was to impress upon you the importance of hearing, but that you would continue to do it so you won't forget. Verse 17, diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded. You don't just hear them once and say you've done it. Continue in them. Verses 24 and 25. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Think about who's saying that. <laughs> They're the ones who obeyed. The ones who disobeyed, he didn't preserve alive. Those are the ones that died in the wilderness, but those who obeyed are preserved alive to this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. In fact, one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 29, 29, points out exactly this fact of the revelation that comes from God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God revealed these things. He gave them to us. They are special possession, His word. It's amazing when you think about that, that God has given his word into our hands. And what he expects us to do with that immediately is to keep it and to do it and to hear it and to give it to our children then so they can continue to do it, that we may do all the words of this law. That basis that's being spoken of here in Deuteronomy 6 and that's spoken of again in Deuteronomy 29 in that way is reiterated in the New Testament. Romans 10 verse 17, hearing or faith... <laughs> comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How do I know the wonderful things that God has planned for me? How do I know the blessing of salvation that is mine? Well, it's because I hear about it in God's word. Jesus came and testified of it by speaking. And then the apostles wrote down what he spoke and they spoke new things and those were written down. And as I hear these promises, I'm given the content of what God has, has revealed for me so that I can know assuredly 
Hearing, therefore, produces faith, and continual hearing then increases faith. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we, we know these verses by heart. The verses just before them talk about Timothy having been committed to the Holy Scriptures from the time that he was young. He continually kept these things. And he could say, well, I already know all that, Paul. You're not telling me anything I haven't been waiting for. I'm so excited that Jesus came. I've known this my whole life. And Paul says, no, but you need to keep growing. You need to continue. He says, starting in verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, may become complete is the idea, thoroughly equipped for every good work, that he may continue to grow in those things that have been revealed. Hearing is not a one-time deal. You can't go to church once a year and say, Well, I've heard the Word of God. I've got my fix. You can't go to church once a week for that matter and say, well, heard the word of God, I've got my fix. (laughs) You've got to be hearing the word of God. And that began in this great uh, doctrine of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hearing God is the humbling experience of recognizing that he's speaking to me. He's giving me something that is of utmost value. And I need to value it and use it. But as he's laying out this need to hear, he begins to speak to the character of God. Back in Deuteronomy 6 again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's a fair translation. Uh, I think most of the translations handle it that way. But literally what's being said here is that Jehovah our Elohim, Elohim is a plural word for God. It's the God creator we see for the first two chapters of Genesis. Then all of a sudden we have God as he makes man becomes God Jehovah. He's mentioned in a different way in, in, uh, second, in part of Genesis 2 there and, and forward. You've got this Jehovah God, deity, divinity, Elohim, who is one Jehovah. <laughs> it's kind of a strange way of saying things. And first off, we think, well, it speaks about his unity. We understand that this plurality Elohim is one God only. There's not, this is not some sort of polyg- uh, 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 polytheism here. But this is an understanding of a singular kind of God. But that's not exactly the point here. The point here is that God is unique. He is different from any other kind of gods that men have made up. And so the uniqueness of God is what's in view. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 5 and see how God really spelled that out for them in the Ten Commandments. We know the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. God is singular and says, you will not have anything that will compete with me. There will be nothing that's like me. You cannot make a likeness of me. And it's interesting how in Leviticus, once we get past the uh, Levitical requirements for the priests, starting in chapter 11, we begin to see how God sanctifies the nation, how he sets apart the nation to himself. By all of these laws for the rest of the book of Leviticus, God is sanctifying the people. He's already set up a priesthood. He's already taught them the laws about how the priesthood will operate. And then he teaches daily life and how to be holy 
in daily life. And it begins in chapter 11 with these Levitical laws of, of food, ones that are so ridiculed perhaps by Bible critics today. But I want you to notice that the reason he gives these laws is not the reasons that most of the critics are coming up with. Some of the critics even say, well, it's reasonable what he did because he was keeping them healthy. These are healthy food laws. That may be true. God never mentions health, not physical health at least, anywhere in these laws. Leviticus 11, starting at verse 44, I want you to notice the language here. He says, I am the Lord your God. You'll notice in your Bibles probably that the word Lord there is all caps. That means it's Jehovah. He says, I am Jehovah your Elohim. Those are the words that are used back there in Deuteronomy 6.4. Jehovah our Elohim, Jehovah is one. He says, I am Jehovah your Elohim. I am God, the creator God. I am your covenant God who is the creator God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth, for I am Jehovah, who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your Elohim. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. You see how important that concept of Jehovah being Elohim, being one, is that uniqueness of God? He's going to stand on that all through the book of Leviticus. I am Jehovah, your Elohim. That's the reason I'm telling you these things. When he told them to keep the dietary laws, it wasn't to keep them physically healthy and away from getting trichinosis or whatever they might get from these animals they would eat. It was to separate them to himself, to separate them from the nations who worshipped all these other gods and did whatever they wanted. In Leviticus 18, when he hands down the laws of sexual purity over and over again, he doesn't talk about the problems of incest. He doesn't talk about moral problems. He talks about, I am the Lord your God and I made you for better things. Leviticus 18, starting in verse 2. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am Jehovah your Elohim. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you, you shall not do, nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am Jehovah your Elohim. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am Jehovah. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am Jehovah. What is his reasoning? I made you and I brought you to myself and this is what I expect of you. Over and over and over again. He is the reason for their being and he ought to be their focus. And that's exactly the point in Deuteronomy 6. Focus on God. Hear Him and focus on Him. Focus all your love on Him. God is holy. And the fact is, in His uniqueness, He is all sufficient for everything you need a God to be. You don't need to be like the heathen going after some God to purify the waters and some God to bring you food. Notice that in the wilderness, God did that. (laughs) He purified the waters. He brought them food. The same God. You don't need a God to make your food and your fields fertile. God already does that for you. You don't need a God to make you strong against your enemies. God already does that for you. You don't need some other God. All the nations sought after different gods, the God of war, the God of fertility, the God of love. You have Jehovah, your Elohim, who is one. And the idea is he's unique and he's sufficient for all of these things. He's holy. He's set apart from every other possibility of a God. He's above them all. He's sovereign of sovereign and Lord of lords, we say in the New Testament. That's the idea. He's the only God you need. Look at how this language carries over then into the New Testament. Some, some 
uh, phrases we'd be more familiar with. This Deuteronomy, the Shema, the hear God, hear O Israel, has its tendrils all through the Bible. In Ephesians 4, we see it sort of this way. Starting at verse 4, in this context about uh, maintaining the unity in which they were called, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The Lord is one, one God, one spirit, one Lord, one God who is in you all and through you all and above all. That's the idea. Romans chapter 1, the problem with men is that they rejected that concept of this one all-sufficient God and began to serve and worship the creature rather than the creator. The idea is they're seeking lesser gods, usually themselves, <laughs> as the ones who get to make the rules. They reject this concept of a true and all-sufficient God. Paul says you can look at nature and know one God made all of this. You can learn of his divine nature. We're not going to read that text in Romans 1.18, but that's the argument that the supreme God, the all-powerful, the all-sufficient, has been slighted and rejected by men who've sought for lesser things as their gods. In Colossians chapter 2, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, we get more of this concept. Speaking now of Christ, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. He is all you need. One God, and Jehovah is one, and he's all sufficient. He's holy, and he's the only God you need. And the point is, we just made there in Colossians, that Jesus claims that deity for himself. He is Jehovah. He makes that claim explicitly. The Jews understand it. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, John pulls no punches as he begins. Also in his first uh, letter, he, he speaks of Jesus in the same way. But here he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's no doubt as to his nature. There's one God. Jesus is part of that one God. In chapter 10 and verse 30, as Jesus is uh, discussing things with the religious leadership, with some who had believed on him, but are starting to turn, John 10 and verse 30, he says, I and my Father are one. The next verse, they took up stones to stone him because they understood he was making himself God by saying, I am one with the Father. If Jehovah is one God and I'm one with him, then I'm one God. I'm part of that one Godness. That's what Jesus was saying. And in chapter 17, that's really his desire for all who follow. John 17, verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. This oneness concept is all through the scriptures. It's not just unity of thought and unity of action. It's uniqueness of character. God is the only one who possesses that. And so because of that, there ought to be no division in ourselves as we're seeking the Lord. We can't have the all-sufficient Lord and then suffice something else that I'll serve. Something else is going to bring me what I need because the all-sufficient Lord is not enough. That doesn't make any sense. And so Moses is calling them to remember that in Deuteronomy 6 and calling us to remember it really as it's reiterated all through the Bible. His uniqueness in that essence then, his holiness after all, demands that his worshipers should have a singular focus as we worship him. 
Again, in Exodus 20, we've already seen this in the Deuteronomy 5 account, but let's look at it again in Exodus 20. This is the Ten Commandments. begins this way. I am Jehovah your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Nothing else can be your God. So uh, frightening then that so quickly they turned away and made gods out of golden calves, both on the way and then later in the time of Jeroboam. How is that possible? that they didn't understand this striking message. Also in Matthew 6, if you'll look at the language Jesus uses here. Matthew 6, verse 24, we know this. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. God is one. He's all-sufficient. He needs you to hear him and love him in a unique, in an all-encompassing way. Verse 33 Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. He's the one that's sufficient to make sure you have what you need. Joshua put it this way, another famous verse that we all know. Choose yourselves this day whom you'll serve. You can serve the gods that your father served on the other side of the river. You could serve your God, the gods of the Egyptians or the gods of the Canaanites. Choose. But me and my family, we choose the Lord. You can't serve them all. You have to make a choice. That's what we want so much today, this, this concept of syncretism. Uh, well, I, I love Christianity. Oh, it's great. But I love Buddhism too. And there's great things in Zionism. And there's great things among the Hindus. I just want to have it all. You can't. Now, sometimes our world sees that as harsh. You mean God says he's got to be the only one? Yes. And he backs it up. He is the only God. All the others are imposters. And all the others will fail. And all the others are insufficient to bring what God is offering through the power of his word, through the transformation that it brings. And so he demands a singular focus as we worship him. Paul told the Corinthians, you cannot sit at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. <laughs> Don't be partaking in these things that were offered to idols. Don't be a partaker with that. You can't be in both worlds at the same time. So the injunction is to love the Lord with all. <laughs> with all your heart, he begins, and that's where there's this distinction that's being made by the time we get to the New Testament age. This is a hard word sort of to translate. In the Hebrew, and I'm not even going to try, it's labab, but that's as close as you're getting. I don't speak Hebrew. But in the book of Deuteronomy, the word that's translated heart there is this word, labab, which means the inner man, the mind or the will, sometimes the heart, soul, understanding. Sometimes it speaks of the mind of the knowledge and thinking, reflection and memory. Sometimes it's the seat of emotions and passions. We tend to make a distinction between those two, especially in English. We don't think of the heart as being where we think. We think of the heart as being where we're driven by emotion. The mind is where we think. But this Hebrew word heart has both of those concepts involved. It's the thinking and it's the feeling. And both of those are intended as we serve the Lord. Sometimes we want to back out of that and say, well, if your heart's in it, then you're not really following the truth. You're just kind of following your emotions. But God says your heart ought to be in it. <laughs> and so sometimes we go on the other side and we say, well, I want to follow the Lord with my mind. But if your heart's not in it, it doesn't matter how methodically perfect you get things, if your heart's not in it, you're not going to be serving the Lord as you ought to. We've got to learn to combine those two. And this Hebrew word really does that. It's a very convenient word in that sense. Love the Lord with the passions and with the understanding. In fact, that translation using that word understanding perhaps fits better with, with this concept of the, of the mind here or the heart. We come to an understanding and we do that 
by various ways. And sometimes that involves even our emotional responses to what things are. They help us come to an understanding. Can't be driven by our emotions, but emotions are a part of our learning process. In the New Testament, we have two words, this heart and mind then, because in the Greek, they had sort of this same struggle. <laughs> How do we depict this thing that means both the passions and the understanding, both the knowledge and the feeling? How do we depict that? Well, let's use two words. <laughs> and so by the time of Jesus' day, that's why the scribe comes along speaking Greek and adds this other word that sort of helps define that first one. And so we have cardia. You might recognize that from words like cardiogram. That's heart, <laughs> literally the heart. To the Greek thinking, that's the center of all physical and spiritual life. It's the fountain and seat of the thoughts and the passions, the desires, appetites and affections, but mostly purposes and endeavors. And again, even their word cardia, heart, has this idea of the mind mixed up in it. How do we separate that? Sometimes we talk about knowing something by heart. We talk about how much we feel. No, we've memorized it. We also get it mixed up sometimes when we talk about heart and mind. It's difficult to define some of these terms without context. And so this second Greek word tends to help with that a little bit. You've got dianoia here, which talks about the mind as a faculty of understanding. It's what I think with. But also this word has with it the concepts of feeling and desiring. Because in truth, when I know something to be true, then I'm going to have an emotional response about that. When I understand who the Lord is and what he's done to me, it ought to drive me to come to him. It ought to. So that knowledge ought to bring with it a sort of feeling. The feeling ought to come behind the knowledge. It ought not to drive the knowledge, because that's how you get in trouble. I feel this to be true, so it must be true. No, it's true, so now I feel this way about it. That's the way it ought to work. And that's what this word kind of brings about. The faculty of understanding that has with it this feeling and desiring. And this word can be translated as mind or as spirit. So it's both sort of physical and spiritual. It really describes a way of thinking and feeling. And so I think all of these words together help us come to an understanding. These words describe loving God both with desire and with understanding. Think about how we see that in some of these texts. Jeremiah 29, 13. Uh, here they're in captivity. And this is really what Jeremiah is saying is something that, that he's actually gotten from Deuteronomy 4, shortly before this text we're looking at in Deuteronomy 6. But I want to share with you Deuteronomy 29, 13. You may have it memorized also. A lot of these are verses that we know well. Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You're complaining that you're in this broken land, this foreign land where they don't speak your language. Are you really seeking me or you just want somebody to get you out of your situation? When you begin to look for me with all your heart, then you'll find me because you'll employ everything you've got. And so there's desire and understanding. Perhaps the best one to talk about these things is David. So as we go to Psalm 63, hang on to this one because we're going to come back to it in a minute. I want to share something else from it later. Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Here's the desire and the understanding both together. It's only God who can quench what I need to have quenched. 
I need Him. I don't just need what He offers me. I need Him because only He can help. So that's this idea of loving God with all your heart and mind. And the idea behind that really is that it's rooted in will. This is not just I'm going to stumble across one day and, oh, I found God. Didn't even know I was looking for that. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith it's impossible to please Him. But by faith... We are seeking God and recognizing that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who, the King James says, who diligently seek him. That's really, it's inherent in the word. It's not technically in the word, but it's inherent. This idea of this diligent seeking, this willful searching for God. (laughs) He's placed eternity in our hearts. And if we don't want to seek out what that is that's missing, we're missing it all. (laughs) It's him. And so loving the Lord with all your heart and all your mind means a willful decision to seek him out, to find him, and to do his will. (laughs) You've heard to know him is to love him. That's true. (laughs) When we know who God is and what he's done, we can't help but respond in love. But it's also true with God that to love him is to know him. (laughs) And I think that's really true when we're starting to like somebody, but we want to decide whether we're going to love them or not, we begin to dig in and find out all we can about this person. Sometimes we blindly accept just everything we see. Oh, it's all great. Everything's perfect. We blind ourselves to the things that aren't as perfect. None of us is perfect. But we do that because we willfully want to love this person. We're willing to overlook their faults. Oh, how God does that with us. (laughs) He wants to love us. It's not that he just overlooks our faults, but he removes them from us by the means that he set up to do that as we come to him in love. To know him is to love him. We need to know him. But to love him is to know him. We need to get to know him more and more. And that's what loving the Lord with all of our heart looks like. We just are digging in to find out as much as we can about this, this one who loves us and who we want to love better. Just love the Lord with all your heart or mind and love the Lord with all your soul. The Hebrew word here in Deuteronomy is nefesh. Again, I'm no Hebrew scholar. But it speaks of the soul, which really speaks of the being of self. It speaks of life or the creature in in itself, the person. It also has this idea of the appetites or of the mind or of this living being that has desires, emotions, and passions. Again, another word that's chock full of meaning. Interestingly enough, there's some overlap when you look at the word soul with heart and mind. You see mind specifically in part of the definition of this word. Then you've got desire, emotion, and passion that we tend to think of as with the heart. People, beings, have all of these. And so you can't describe a person without describing the faculty of thinking and the faculty of feeling. Those are part of who a person is, what a person is. And so that's all wrapped up in this word soul as well. But the point behind this is that this word in in the Hebrew really gets to the idea of the being himself. And we really see that in the Greek word also, suke here, which is literally breath, but speaks of the force that animates the body, that shows itself in the breathing. You tell someone's alive, how you know? Is he breathing? (laughs) Yeah, he's still alive. (laughs) Might test his heartbeat, but we always say, is he breathing? That's it. You see the life force because the person's chest is rising and falling. There's a second aspect to this word which speaks of the soul. It's the seed of the feelings, desires, affections, and aversions. In the Greek, it thinks mostly of this this responsiveness that describes a person. And again, there's some overlap here with heart and mind. You've got 
the feelings, desires, affections, and aversions. There's a reason for all of that. Really what's being said with love the Lord your God with your soul, with all your soul, is to seek God with your whole being. (laughs) Your existence ought to be seeking God. This is man's all, is what Solomon says at the end of Ecclesiastes. (laughs) Fear God and keep his commandments. That's what our life ought to be. And that's the pursuit of one who loves the Lord. I'm going to seek him out with my whole being. So that overlap there is intentional (laughs) because our whole being involves both our physical and our mental self, both our mind and our engagement with things and our feelings about those things that we're engaged with. And we see that in biblical texts. Again, Psalm 63, did you notice what David said there? My soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you. David understood that he's entirely involved in this seeking for God. He needs him both spiritually and physically. (laughs) He needs him for all he has. We saw in 1 Peter, about fleshly lusts that war against the soul. <laughs> we talked about that. But I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 here. Look what Paul says about the problem with sensuality. Flee sexual immorality, he says in verse 18. Then he says in verse 19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, <laughs> which are God's. You've got both, and they both belong to God, and they're both where you can honor and glorify God, in body and in spirit. In other words, seek him with your being, with everything you've got. Give it to the Lord. And finally, love the Lord with all your strength. The Hebrew word there is mihod. It means exceedingly or much. It might describe might or force or abundance. That's a really interesting word when you think about that being translated here as strength. It just means overdoing it. You gave as much as you had. An abundance, an exceeding amount. That's pretty helpful when you're looking at what this text is talking about. The Greek word there, iskis, speaks of ability or force or strength or might, as rightly translated might in the New Testament or strength. When you put those two together and you consider what's being said, Love God exceedingly with all your ability. That should sound familiar. There are texts in the New Testament that basically spell out that concept of seeking God with all your strength. Thinking first of Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. Here is where the grace of God has taught us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people exceeding in their abilities. (laughs) Zealous for good works. Zealous means you're exceeding as you go out to try to find what else you can be involved in. (laughs) You're zealous for good works. Exceeding in abundance in the service of what is good. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. What is it that Paul tells us about what God has done with us? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We ought to be exceeding in our abundance and in our ability toward walking in these works that God made. People that say, well, I just can't do that. There's no way I could serve like that. 
are saying, God hasn't given me any ability. <laughs> Paul says, God has given you ability. In fact, he recreated you in Christ so that you could use that ability in a powerful way. He's exceedingly giving you ability every single day. We ought to thank God for the opportunities we have every single day, and we ought to engage them with the power that he's given us to do that. Or as we looked in James chapter 2 in our review today, think about this text. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. We're not trying to earn salvation. We're trying to show God how grateful we are for this exceeding power and strength he's given us, and we want to use it in serving him. He's given us abilities, and we'll grow in those as we learn to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and we employ all of our strength in doing that. We'll be able to grow in our abilities. <laughs> it's amazing how far people will come when they're engaged in hearing the Lord, understanding his nature, and loving him with all they have. The danger of a study like this, though, is that sometimes we look at that and we think, okay, I've got to get my heart and mind right, yes. <laughs> got to get my soul right, yes. Got to be thinking with all my strength, yes. That's not the point of this text at all. The point of this text is to show that all of those are so intertwined that as you're doing one, you're already doing the others. There's no compartmentalization. We like to think that way, especially Western thought. <laughs> like to break everything up in these neat little compartments. That is not what this text had in mind. The point of that text and the point that the lawyer made, the scribe there as he spoke to Jesus, and the point that Jesus made as he spoke to the scribes is that they needed to involve all of the aspects of their life in serving him. Is that not exactly what we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 6? Look at the instructions that come right after verses 4 and 5. I appreciate so much Luke reading that for us this morning. Look at the instructions that come starting at verse 6. <laughs> These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall commit them to memory. <laughs> They'll be in your mind. They'll be in your heart because you love them as well. You shall teach them diligently to your children. I don't have any ability. I, I just don't have any, any capacity for instruction. Do you have children? <laughs> You're teaching them every single day. Do you have neighbors? You're teaching them every single day by the way you live your life. Do you have coworkers? You're teaching them every single day. You might not recognize it, but you ought to be teaching them these things, the things that, that are important. Teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you're in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Let them be frontlets between your eyes. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on the gates of your city. There's opportunities everywhere. Every walk of life mentioned here. Because it's not compartmentalized. It's this is what I do because this is who I am because that's who he is. All of this is tied back to God. And so we need to be loving the Lord our God. First, we need to hear him. If we're not listening, we're not going to know who he is. We're not going to know how awesome he is. We're not going to know his unique nature. But once we do, we can only respond with love. But the kind of love that's going to be successful, that's going to help me to grow, and it's going to draw me to God, it's going to draw others to the Lord through me, is the kind of love that loves the, God, loves the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, all my strength, and all my mind. I hope that this sort of defining these terms will help you to see practically how to put that into, into work in your own life. 
How are you loving the Lord your God? You understand, He is your God. He's Jehovah. There's only one. He is the creator and He's the judge. And if you're not serving Him, one day you're going to bow the knee to Him, but it'll be too late. There's a choice you have today to bow the knee, confess that Jesus is His Son and is your Lord. If you're willing to come forward and do that, confessing him, repenting of your sins, have them washed away in baptism, he can help you to start a brand new life today. We'd love to help you do that. If you are a Christian and you haven't been loving the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, it's not too late. The injunction to them as they were about to go into the Holy Land is do this. You've made it all this way through the wilderness. Now keep doing this. Hear the Lord. Know who he is and love him with all you have. If we can help you to do that, that's our desire. Once you make a need known, you can come forward now if you like while we stand and sing this song to encourage you.